Hey, thanks for listening to the Journey Podcast. We're glad you're here. Journey exists to engage people in the process of knowing Jesus Christ. We pray this podcast engages you and encourages you to become more like Him. Well, good morning, or good afternoon, I should say. As Will said, my name is Keith Walton. I'm the campus pastor at our Sherwood location. And it is my honor and pleasure um, to share and close out this series called Habits. Um, If you have not been tracking with us on Habits, which I hope you do, please go back, listen to the podcast. You can find them on YouTube. But um, we've talked about uh, personal habits. We've talked about the habits of the church. We've talked about uh, the habits of community. We talked about the habits of money. And today we're going to talk about the habits of time and the habits of family. Maybe, maybe, may even get into family time habits. Um, but before we do that, if you will, please bow your heads and pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity uh, to, to, to be in your presence, Lord. We thank you for the gathering today. Lord, I ask right now that you decrease Keith, but you increase in me so that they may see you in me, Heavenly Father. Allow them speak your word today to hear, for them to hear your word, Lord. So we ask right now that you open up our ears that we may hear your word. Open up our eyes that we may see your word. Open up our mouth that we may speak your word. Open up our mind that we may understand your word. But more than that, Heavenly Father, open up our heart. Let your word uh, be planted there and grow up a mighty harvest. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I realize for the multiple times that I have spoken at uh, the, our Evans location, as well as Winter Camp and JSM, I have never shared anything about myself. So y'all don't even know who I am. So before we get started uh, and I get into the message, I want to share a little bit about myself. Uh, my background is in education. I've been a coach at one of our uh, area high schools, um, both football, basketball, track. I even coach baseball. But dig a little bit deeper. I am the youngest of five siblings. Um, my father passed away. I was called home to be with the Lord when I was five. I'm the product of an army family of an army. So technically, I guess I could be an army brat. Um, unfortunately, uh, my father had retired by the time I was born. I was a uh-oh baby. Um, when my mama told him, they both went uh-oh because uh, they weren't expecting me at all. But I was a gift, a gift. I tell myself that all the time. I was a gift. Um, but my father ended up being passed, passed away uh, because of Agent Orange. He did multiple tours in Vietnam. And um, I can remember the day, the last time that I saw him, my oldest brother comes to get me, my sister, and the, the, my brother that was closer to our age that was still living at home. He was 18 at the time. My older brother, he had been in the Army. He was home on leave because my father uh, was uh, struggling with cancer. And my mom was at the hospital, and my oldest brother comes to get me and my sister and my other brother, and we get in the car, and we drive out to Eisenhower. And when we get out to Eisenhower, we go into the hospital, we get on the elevator, we go up to the cancer floor, and the door opens up, and I look out, and I literally see my dad's room, and my dad is in the bed, and I see all these bells and whistles and lights and all these tubes hooked up to him, and I step out of the elevator, and right, right as I step out of the elevator, the doctor comes out of the room, and he uh, confronts my brother and tells my brother, my oldest brother, that I can't be on the floor. Because of radiation and exposure, I'm too young to be there. So my brother goes on to argue with the man, the doctor, saying that um, 
Now it's my last time. It's the last time my little brother's going to be able to see his dad. He needs to go in and say goodbye. He needs to hug him, tell him he loves him. And the doctor's like, no, because of exposure radiation, he's got to leave. Him, myself, my sister, uh, we had to step back in the elevator. And as I'm stepping back into the elevator, I see my dad shaking his head because my brother's getting extremely loud. My dad holds up his hand. He does like this. He does like this. We step into the elevator. The doors begin to shut. I wave. He waves. And that's the last time I see my father. And for some of you, you have experienced a traumatic loss like that. I guess you could say a traumatic loss. I was five. I really didn't understand death. So I'm like, no, he's in a long sleep. He went away. He come on home. Like the hospital is like a hotel. He just spent a night somewhere. So he come on back home and he never came home. But what's even more miraculous in this is my mom's ability to transition as she's experiencing this paradigm shift, this life-altering uh, change in her life. Everything is going to be different. She lost her number one companion. She lost her best friend. She lost her rock, her provider. And now she's got to step into some shoes that, quite frankly, don't fit. But she does it because my mom understood that time was not going to wait for her to heal. My mom understood that time wasn't just going to automatically provide. My mom understood that she was going to have to work to make a way for the rest of the kids that were at home. And it was going to all be on her shoulders. My mom ends up wearing the hat of both mother and father, daddy and mommy. She kind of leaned more today and giving tough love because she just assumed that that's what I was going to need to grow up. My father was a man's man, big shoulders, tall. He coached football, baseball, and basketball. My father served in the military. My father was a hunter and a fisherman. And I'm waiting to do those things. Those things don't happen. So my mom steps in those shoes. She didn't take me hunting, but she'll take me fishing. But I talked too much to go fishing, and that was a strain on our relationship. So that ended pretty quick. Say, so, Pastor Keith, why in the world are you sharing that story? Well, in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, there's a passage of, that I want to share with you guys. And it's not going to make sense at the beginning, but hopefully by the end of this you'll understand. And it says, of Issachar. Men who had understanding of the times. Everybody say understanding. Ooh, one more time. Everybody say understanding. Okay, good. Down at Sherwood, they talk back at me. So, like, I'm not used to just, okay. Understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. 200 chiefs and all their kingsmen under their command. The New Testament, I mean, the King James Version says, and of the children of Issachar, which were men that had understanding of the times. Everybody say understanding. To know what Israel ought to do. The head of them were 200 and all of their brethren at their commandment. Another version says all of their family was there. So let me paint this picture. If you go back and read the beginning of chapter 12, it is like a war party. Like, if you have seen Game of Thrones, or you've got all these different tribes, they're coming from the north, and they're about to fight. They're coming together to fight. What has just happened is Saul 
has fallen on his sword, King Saul. So the children of Israel are without a king. And all these tribes start gathering. And if you read, starting at chapter 12, they start naming all these tribes, the Benjamites and the Amorites, the some other ites, just a bunch of ites. And, but God's description of them is this. When he mentions the Benjamites, he talks about their shields and how good and skilled they were with their shields. And they go into the description of another type of ites, another tribe, and they said their face were like lions. Because all these people did, this group, these tribes, they were warriors. They were ready to fight. And it gave a description of one particular group, how they were very skilled with spears, and there was nobody else better with spears, and there was nobody else better than this other group, this other tribe with the sword. And it was this long description of all these groups. And then it gets down to this particular verse when it talks about the Issacharian men. It doesn't talk about them in description of going to war at all. It, it does not list whether they were... Uh, they threw rocks with their slings. It didn't say any of that. They didn't talk about their sword. It said, of Issachar, men who, under, who had an understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. 200 chiefs and all their kinsmen under their command. It doesn't list any tool for battle other than understanding of the times. I'm, please go back and start at chapter 12, and you'll see what I'm talking about. It's so funny, and it leaves out all of their battle tactics and all of their uh, tools of war, and then all it says about the Issacharian men is they had an understanding of the times. Well, Pastor Keith, what does that mean? What was, what was it for them to understand? I'm going to get to that in a second. Before I get to that, though, let me point this out. They had 200 chiefs show up. So 200 men show up at this war council. All of them are in a leadership role. All of them have an idea of what needs to get done. 200 grown men that all think they know what to do. And they don't fight. They don't argue. As a matter of fact, it doesn't say anything about them bumping heads. See, y'all have to understand we're talking about a nation of people showing up. Make it even more practical. Different states. The Issacharians could have been from the state of Idaho. And Idaho shows up and they're not fighting. They're not fighting amongst each other, nor are they fighting each other. They're not fighting because you're from the nation from the east and you're from the nation from the west and we don't like each other. They're not fighting at all. 200 grown men that all feel like they should be in charge, and they're not arguing. This is amazing. They're not arguing about different colors. They're not arguing about the, the, the dialect of your language. They're all there for one purpose. They're all there for one reason. The men of Issachar understood the time of the past. We're going to get into that. They understood the time of the present that they were in, and how their decisions, what, where they were at at that moment, were going to affect the time in the future. The men of Issachar understood the times. Okay, how did they get there? All right, so they outside of this cave. And inside of this cave is David. See, he had been running. I'll explain why he'd been running. So we're going to start back in Egypt. 
You got to track with me now. The children of Israel were very finicky people, very finicky. And Moses shows up to Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh goes, no. Pharaoh says, uh, Moses goes, let my people go. Pharaoh goes, no. Plagues come. Pharaoh's like, take them. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I'm going to move real fast. You just got to follow me. So Pharaoh says, take them. Moses goes to the children of Israel. Round up. Let's go. We're moving out. They're like, yay, we're moving. So they're marching out of Egypt. They're going across the desert. Now, understand this. We're not talking about a group of people. We're talking about a nation of people walking behind one man, a nation of people. He got short people. He got tall people. He got uh, loud people, quiet people. He got pregnant women. He got newborn babies. He's got toddlers. He's got teenagers complaining about it's too hot and I don't want to do all this. He's got cattle. He's got the wealth of an entire nation following behind him. And then they get word that Pharaoh's going to renege on letting them go. And at this point, they're right at the Red Sea. Moses, what are you doing? What have you done to us? Moses, if we would have been better off as slaves. You got us out here. It's hot. Ain't no deodorant. We ain't took no bath. I ain't got no shoes on. The sand is going up between my toes. And I got them sand cuts. It hurts. I'm agitated. I'm frustrated. Moses, this is all your fault. And to top it, Pharaoh's coming to kill us all. Moses gets to a point. He raises his hands up. He yields to God. God performs a miracle using something Moses had. Parts the Red Sea. The children of Israel walks across on dry land. And here comes Pharaoh. Pharaoh tries to follow him. God releases the ocean, swallows all of uh, uh, the Egyptians up, children of Israel live. That should have been enough to follow God the rest of their life. But they don't. A couple days go by, maybe weeks, I'm paraphrasing. They hungry, ain't got no food. Moses, this is your fault. Ain't no Publix, ain't no Kroger's. We can't go shopping. I'm hungry. We done killed all the cattle. We're about to die. Moses goes, God prays, and God from heaven provides manna. Oh, this is good. Okay, but like, we've had this all week. Oh, I'm sick of this. Moses, can't we get something else? All we got is this manna. I'm so sick of manna. Oh, God. Oh, oh, Moses, why'd you do this to us? Some time goes by. They're still marching through the wilderness, trying to make it to the promised land. They're thirsty. I can only imagine they've got something past cotton mouth. Like it's the worst dry mouth you could ever have. They're thirsty. We ain't got nothing to drink. All the camel skins are empty. <sighs> Moses takes his staff and hits the rock and water comes out. And that should be enough. That miracle should be enough that I will follow God. You're my king. I will follow you. They march along some time ago. Moses has had enough of all the bickering and complaining. I need a timeout. I need a cow gun moment. Take me away. Moses goes to the top of the mountain. Oh, Jesus, God, I, God, I just had to give you your presence because, like, my flesh is weak. I'm about, to, I'm about to hurt some people. Like, let one more again ask me about something to drink and some food after all you've done. What's that noise? God, what you telling me to do? Go back down at the mountain. Oh, what are they doing? He, gets, he goes down the mountain. Oh, my gosh. 
they have lost their mind. They done created false idols. They are on there dancing with fire. Oh, just, just crazy. They've lost their mind. Moses goes back up the mountain. Got to have some rules. God gives them a law. Comes down with 10 of them. It's actually like 107, I think. All these different laws they got to follow, like don't eat shrimp, don't eat all this stuff. Anyway, gives it to the children of Israel. They, they, they follow it for a little while. Moses don't get to go in the promised land. New commander steps up. Fast forward, we're at Jericho. They march around the walls with these unbelievable military tactic constructions. They march around the wall. Nobody's saying anything. Then the day comes when they shout. The wall falls down. They go in and start shanking people. They win that battle. God is like, I've never forsaken you. And that should be enough that you call me king. But they don't. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Fast forward to Gideon. Gideon in the wine press. He trying to hide. Uh, at that time, the Amorites and uh, the Amorites keep coming in and they keep stealing all their food. So, like, for example, if their, if their crop was corn, they would store all the corn up. And then the Amorites would come in and take all the corn, leaving the children of Israel with nothing, causing a famine. It was a, it was a military tactic. So they're about to starve to death. And God has an angel of God appears to war in front of Gideon, like, Gideon, you mighty man of valor. You're going to go out, you're going to fight all the Amorites, and you're going to win. Gideon's like, oh, no, I can't do it. Angel of God said, yes, you can. No, I can't. Yes, you can. Okay, I'll do it. You're going to give me a million people. God's, the angel of God's like, nope. 500,000? Nope. 10,000? 1,000? I'm going to give you 300. You can give me 300 men to go war against this other nation with 300 men? God's like, do you trust me? We're going to win. Never forsaken you. Gideon goes out, fights, starts shanking everybody. They win. And that should be enough for the children of Israel to follow God as king. But it's not. Samuel jumps on the scene. All the children of Israel is fussing at Samuel. Samuel, we keep having to fight the Amorites and the Philistines because they, they, they got kings. We need a king. We need a man's man. Oh, Samuel goes, let me go pray to God. All right, God, I, I know you mad at me, but the children of Israel, they keep screaming and yelling about wanting a king. God's like, all right, I'm going to give them exactly what they want. Whenever God does that, you need to be like, mm. you don't necessarily want everything you're asking for. So he tells Samuel who to go to. Samuel anoints Saul as king. Saul was a man's man. He's had that, he's tall, he's athletic looking. He's got that chin with that, that the butt chin that's got that dimple right here in it. I mean, he's a man's man. That crown fits perfect on his head. And the children of Israel, they love him. When they go out to fight, man, Saul's winning all these battles. Man, Saul is the man. But Saul had a flaw. He had this jealous spirit. So he's like second in command. Y'all talking about me? Yeah. Saul, Saul was always in his feelings. He, he was a diva. He was a diva. And so Samuel was like, mm, Saul, Saul, I don't know how long Saul going to last. God's like, okay, go see your friend Jesse. So he goes over to Jesse's house, knocks on the door, tells Jesse, Jesse, look, man, I got some problems, Saul, I don't know. Don't you got some sons? Jesse's like, I've got some of the greatest men you've ever seen in your life. He lines them, his sons up, 
And uh, Samuel goes and looks at him and says, no, it ain't you. It ain't you. It ain't you. It ain't you. Jesse, this is all you got. Jesse's like, well, I mean, there's David. Where is he at? Oh, Lord, David out there in that pasture. Samuel's like, show me. Samuel walks out to the pasture, and then he see David. I always picture David because he danced before the Lord. He's always doing the electric slide. David's always, hey, David, David's just a strange cat. Like, how he going to be king? But Samuel goes out and like, I anoint you king. David's like, bet. I done killed a bear, tiger, and lion, whatever. Then we get to this point where Saul and his army, they've had it with the Philistines. They've had it. David shows up and Goliath is screaming, we're going to end this battle. We're going to end these wars. You bring your best man out to fight against me. And if y'all win, we'll serve y'all. But if I win, if we win, y'all serve us. All right, Saul turns around, looks at his best men. They're like, oh, no, dog, that ain't for us. We, we don't want to throw hands like that. No, we good, we good. David's like, I'll do it. He steps forward, twilling his little sling. Saul's like, this is all we got. We're going we gonna to all die. So they put all this equipment on him. David's like, this is too much. Take it off. So he takes it off, goes out there. Goliath sees him. He's probably laughing. David ain't laughing. He put that rock in there. So, oh, passes out, dies. But like a lot of times we think that's where the story ends. But if you read it a little bit more, David draws out his sword. Because anytime we're defeating the giants in our life, we don't just need to knock them down. We need to kill them. And he runs up and he chops his head off. So if you're struggling with pornography, if you're struggling in your marriage with a jealous spirit, if you're struggling with infidelity, when you give that thing to the Lord, you don't just need to push it down and cover it up. You need to kill it. You need to chop it off at the head. And when that happened, oh, no more issues, they thought, with the Philistines. So they won't have this big party. So they throw this parade. And here it is. They're bringing in Saul. And they're carrying him. And all the men carrying Saul. And they're marching in. And Saul's got that look where his head is up and it's tilted. And his chest is out. And the people are screaming. Saul has killed his thousands. Saul has killed his thousands. Saul stands up. Pokes his chest out. And they go. And David has killed his ten thousand. And Saul sits down. And he gets in the spirit. I think they like David more than me. Oh, this ain't going to work. So he sent David out on these death missions. Things that he knows he's not going to come back and win. But the Lord was with David, so David kept winning. And then Saul got this point where he said, you know, if you're going to do something right, you got to do it yourself. So let me get my army together, and we're just going to kill David. And that is where we are right now. David's in this cave hiding. Saul has realized he's so tormented that he takes his sword and he falls on it, and he dies. The men of Issachar realize they have no leadership. We've been begging for a king. We've been yearning for a king, and the one we had is no longer here. And so they show up to the cave with this habit that they've practiced of humility. These 200 chiefs that feel like I should be the leader, but no, that's not what they said. They're there to support David. 
He's the anointed one. You say, well, Pastor Keith, why did you share that story the way you shared it? Right now in our country, we can't get along for nothing. These men, an entire nation, comes together and gets behind David. These leaders understood the times and followed David, who God called. The second thing is that they were, cons- they were considered wise because they knew the right thing to do, and then they did it. That is where we get mixed up a little bit. The right thing isn't just about my flesh and what I determine is right. The right thing is supposed to be, what we just sang a song about it, this firm foundation that we're supposed to be standing on. That's what determines the right thing. But we get in our feelings too. Golly, there's so many parallels to, well, I ain't talking about y'all. I'm not, I'm not talking about y'all. I ain't calling y'all the children of Israel. However, there are very similar parallels. So here it is. Saul is dead. We're appointing David. You got all these different groups showing up, and they're all unified. So I'm like, God, why is it that we only get unified in the midst of a tragedy? Why do we do that? Why is that in our DNA? So I got to praying about it, and I got to thinking. What other times in our history have we become unified in the midst of a tragedy? Great Depression. During the Great Depression, everybody was on the same page. Nobody had nothing. As a matter of fact, kids in the house, they're getting on my nerves. They got to go out to the, to, the, to, the, to the park and play. So they go outside, they're playing stickball. I'm going to bring some food with me. All I got is these whole potatoes. I just boiled them. They're going to eat them like apples. That's all I got. My friend from down the street, they show up. All they got is bacon, just, just bacon. So they cooked the bacon and brought it. Oh, there go Chris's mom. How y'all doing? What? Y'all brought? Y'all just got tomatoes? And they showed up. And then we just start sharing with everybody. Literally, how tailgating was born. I'm going to give what I have that's not enough for everybody, but I'm going to bring it anyway, and I'm going to share it with everybody. They were unified amidst of tragedy. Another time, World War II. Oh, all the men, I'm going to step up and sacrifice and serve for my country. Every man stepping up and stepping up and stepping up, and they're leaving. They're going out of the country, leaving behind their wives and children. But then they realize, man, we've got this metal shortage. We don't have enough bullets or, or, or torpedoes made. We need some steel and iron. So people just started bringing all the iron that they had across our country to make more ammunition so we can win this war. The one time that we all come together and nobody cared. Recently, though, there was a time, 9-11. I saw more people praying in 9-11. People that I just knew didn't even know the Lord, but they're down praying. They're praying for our country. They're praying for people that they don't even know that lost people. They're, pr- they're praying for all the firemen and EMTs, not just up in New York, but anywhere. Why does it take a tragedy? Why are we such a fickle people that we just don't have the habit of understanding the times? Why do we do that? 
Why does God constantly have to chasten us to get our attention? Chasten. When God wants to get your attention, he told you to go this way, told you to go this way, Jonah told you to go this way, and you don't. Something happens to get your attention. Now, go make it right. Why do we do that? Why, Why can't we just have this habit of obedience? So, you got to understand that the Issacharian men that have this Issacharian spirit of unity and not caring who's in charge and who's first and wanting to serve humbly with David, that's not something that they picked up that day when they were going to that cave. That's not something that they started that year. That's something that they've always had. So Israelites, Hebrews, they used to say this prayer. It's in Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 9. Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 9. Jesus literally quotes this same prayer in the New Testament. But it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment in the New Testament? Fast forward some time. What is the greatest commandment? And his response is to love the Lord your God with all your mind, body, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. The first part that he says, love the Lord your God, that is this. It's part of the Torah. Uh, The Jewish community uses this to this day. But what you need to know is this is a prayer that's not said like a prayer. They don't say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. They don't sing it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. They don't do that either. If you've ever been to a football game like at Georgia, like Georgia-Alabama game, and you got the cheerleaders, they got the two signs, and one of them holds up a sign and it goes, Georgia. And the other one holds up a sign and it goes, Bulldogs. And they do that over and over and over again. And the crowd gets louder and louder and louder until right at the end, they're at this deafening noise and they're screaming out with passion, Georgia, Bulldogs. When the children of Israel, the Hebrews, when they said that prayer, that is how they said it. So I want you to imagine this. We're in a village made of huts, not stone. God's word says you need to say this when you wake up. You need to say this in the midday. And you need to say it before you go to bed. So they woke up at the crack of dawn. They don't say the prayer. And I'm talking about one person. I'm talking about the nation saying this prayer at the same time. And they're screaming it at 5 o'clock in the morning. And everybody's doing it. Lunchtime, before they eat their lunch, many of us would pray over our lunch. They, they pray too, but it's not the same thing. They're shouting the Shema. That's what it's actually called. And before they go to bed, it's pitch black dark outside. And they're screaming it at the top of their lungs with passion. This is the foundation that the Israelites have when they humbly come before David. This is something that has been taught to them for years. But if it was just how they said it, that should be enough, but it's not. 
It goes deeper. They have these things called phalanteries. They're these leather boxes made from cowhide. And in the boxes, they have written on parchment this scripture from Deuteronomy, the Shema, this prayer. And they put it in the box. And when God's word says it should be on your front lips, top of your head, and they tie it down. So before you say the prayer, put the phalantry on. And you scream it at the top of your lungs. That should be enough, but it's not. And the reason they put it on top of their head is they wanted God's word to forever be on their mind. Well, that wasn't enough. They took the same phalantry, had a longer strap to it, put it right here on their bicep, wrapped it around and tied it around their triceps, down their forearm, around their finger, this box with this scripture in it. And they will hold it down to their left side so that God's word will be forever on their heart. And they will scream it. That should be enough, but it's not. When God's word said, you're going to say it as you're going out and you're coming in, you're going in and you're coming out, they would take a metal bar and they would scribe this same verse on the bar and they would attach it to the door frame of the house so that when you left for work that day, men, you would put, that, put your hand on it, you would say it, and then you would bring it to your lips so the word of God would forever be on your mouth, on your mind, on your heart, and on your mouth. Take it a step further. Master teachers that they call rabbi, they also call Jesus that, they would have this shawl on, and the shawl would have these tassels dangling on, dangling on it, and he would walk in his long robe, and there will be tassels on the robe. They would take this same prayer, intertwine it in the tassels as they say it. So, so track with me now as Jesus is walking, and he says, ooh, somebody just touched me. That woman that touched the hem of his garment, she touched that tassel. God's word is amazing, and it is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, but yet and still. God, you're not enough to be the king. You're not enough to be the Lord of my life. You're not enough. I need a little bit more. So there's this letter. It's called The Paradox of Our Time that I want to share with you real quick. The Paradox of Our Time. And it goes, the paradox of our time in history is that we have taller buildings but shorter tempers, wider freeways, but narrow viewpoints. We spend more, but we have less. We buy more, but enjoy less. We have bigger houses and smaller families, more conveniences, but less time. We have more degrees, but less sense, more knowledge, but less judgment, more experts, yet more problems, more medicine, but less wellness. We spend too recklessly, laugh too little, drive too fast, get too angry, stay up too late, get up too tired, read too little, watch too, too much TV, and pray too seldom. We have multiplied our possessions but reduced our values. We talk too much. We love too seldom and hate too often. We've learned how to make a living but not a life. We've added years to life, not life to, year, to our years. We've been all the way to the moon and back, but have trouble crossing the street to meet a new neighbor. 
We conquered out of space, but not inner peace. We've done larger things, but not better things. Think about that for a second. Just let that resonate in your spirit. We are in the greatest time in the history of the world. But if you will listen to a lot of us, or, or, or if we can just play uh, everybody's Facebook statuses on the screen, you would think that this is like Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, it's bad, but it ain't Sodom and Gomorrah bad. If you think it is, go do your homework. Because it is not. God is still the same God. He's not shifted positions on his throne. He is the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow, and forevermore. But we're like the children of Israel. It ain't enough. God, I love you and all, but you can't be king. You can't be ruler. You can't be the Lord of my life. What would happen if the body of Christ actually followed God's word? What would happen? What, what would happen to the homelessness and, and, and children going without food? What would actually happen? Man, I know when I grew up, they say it takes a village to raise a child. Everybody in the neighborhood had permission to whoop me. Everybody. Everybody. If that happens today, oh no, somebody going to jail. And it's not going to be the child that did wrong. We're so quick to point fingers. We did this. We shifted this. Don't blame that on the devil. Give him too much doggone credit. We did that. So Pastor Keith, what are you talking about? You're talking about time and habits and you mentioned family time. So I wonder, because it looks like they're doing a whole lot in this scripture. Those Israelites and them putting a box on their head and screaming this prayer and tying around their arm, putting it on the doorpost, praying when they leave in the house, praying when they coming home. So I got to thinking, how many of us, you, because I know I don't do this. It's not a good habit of mine. I need to change it. Do rise and shine prayers. Like the moment you open up your eyes, you automatically give thanks to God. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. So we have a few that does that. Okay. I'm a shower prayer. I like to get in the shower and pray. That's just what I, that's what I do. How many of you pray in the middle of your work day? Show of hands. Middle of your day. Oh, that's more of you. How many of you pray right before you go to sleep? Raise your hand. All right. Where did you learn that at? Praying right before you go to sleep. As a child from your parents. Are we still teaching that? Now, I don't pray when I first wake up. I don't pray in the midday. I don't pray at night. But I do pray right before I eat my breakfast. Raise your hand if you do that. All right, so we call that grace, yes? All right, so how many of y'all pray before you eat your lunch? Okay. How many of you pray before you eat your dinner? Dinner time. Dinner time. Oh, now my mom worked all the time. She worked on uh, Christmas Eve. She worked on Christmas Day. She's doing whatever she's got to do to make the ends meet for our family to be successful. And I thank her for that. I thank her for all the sacrifices she made. But the one thing she did not sacrifice a waiver on was dinner time on Sundays. We're all going to sit down at the exact same time and have dinner. 
Raise your hand if you've ever done that before with your families. All right. And right before we eat, we would have to join hands. And then we would bless the food. But then something else would happen after we blessed the food. My mom would say, what's been going on in your life? How was your day? So we would talk. I would bum it up. Well, you know, Chris took my remote control car and broke it. And then she would go to my sister. And she would go to my brother. And we're having these conversations at home. And I realized right this time last year when we went into shelter in place that that practice went away from the Walton house. We didn't do that. Now, we ate dinner together, but we're not at the same table. I'll be in front of the ESPN watching TV. My daughter will be at the counter. My wife would eat at the counter standing up. When we went to shelter in place, something happened. Just one day, we all sat down at the table again. And I blessed the food and we held hands. What an unbelievable habit for family. And it's something that we've done for years and years and years. But somehow, we've got so much stuff going on and we're so busy. And Lord have mercy, this is like the enemy at the dinner table. That we can't talk to each other anymore. We don't talk to each other anymore. And so we lose that connection. What if we actually practice what God's word said? And that Deuteronomy passage, man, they're praying like, six or seven times a day. But if you actually prayed when you woke up and you prayed for breakfast and you prayed during the midday and you prayed over lunch and you prayed at dinner and you prayed right before you went to bed, you're doing the exact same thing. And you ain't got to wear no box. And the reason you have to wear no box is because of Jesus. Jesus came to earth and took all that away. There's too many rules. So I'm going to give them two. And this is it. This is a big secret. This is the grand finale. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for uh, the message that you've given today. Lord, help us to walk through that challenge. Let's do some things different. Lord, I've gotten too comfortable. I'm not even going to speak about nobody else here. I'm going to talk about myself. I've gotten too comfortable. Let me be different. Heavenly Father, allow me to have a Issacharian spirit. It's the head of my house. Help me to love my family. Help me to respect authority. Help me to do what needs to be done for our nation, for our state, for our city, for this church, for my family, for my house. In son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless y'all. Thanks again for listening today. If you need prayer or help taking your next step, email our team at nextsteps at journeycommunity.net.